Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Insight into Psychology podcast. My name is A.J. LaFerrera, and I am on the marketing team here at McGraw-Hill. And today we have a really exciting topic on assessment in psychology, and we are joined by three great instructors who I'd love to introduce themselves. Eric, do you want to kick us off? My name is Eric Landrum. I'm a professor of psychology at Boise State University. Uh, I've been teaching there for the past 27 years. Uh, my role in assessment is really personal and professional. Uh, I, I use assessment data to improve my teaching. Uh, I also have been talking about assessment on a local regional and national level for quite some time, and uh, administratively, I'm about to become department chair later in 2019, so it'll take on a more professional role for me as well. Hi, my name is Janelle Cavazos, and I am the introductory psychology coordinator and an associate professor of psychology at the University of Oklahoma. I do a lot of different types of assessment in my classes mostly to try and uh, help students learn better. So I use assessment for formative learning as well as summative. And then I also serve as the assessment coordinator for the undergraduate program in psychology. We have about a 1,000 majors, so it's kind of a big program. And so I'm, I'm helping to coordinate all of the different types of assessment that go into our uh, yearly assessment reports from the department. And then I also chair a working group at the University of Oklahoma as a whole where we are trying to uh, better our gen ed assessment program across the university, including every single gen ed class that we have, which is over a 1,000. I am Catherine Wicks. I'm an assistant dean in social sciences at Blinn College in Bryan, Texas. Um, I also serve as a professor of psychology. So at my institution, which is a two-year institution, our social sciences area covers everything from history, government, anthropology, sociology, criminal justice, legal, geography, psychology. And so in my role, I serve as someone who is helping coordinate assessment for not only psychology courses, but also for anthropology, history, um, sociology courses as well. So my role in assessment is not only personal in terms of the way that I teach uh, classes both online and face-to-face, -face, but also from a very institutional perspective. Our institution is in the state of Texas where at a two-year institution we have mandatory general education uh, outcomes as well as mandatory student learning outcomes. So we look at assessment from the perspective of how can we help faculty answer questions that are very personal for them in their classroom, but also serve the demands that are placed upon us in terms of reporting information that the state is asking of us as well. All right, well, thank you three for joining us again. I, I really appreciate it. Um, since the three of you teach various psychology courses, I think it makes sense to start with how you approach assessment in your classrooms. Anybody want to kick us off? I can talk about that. I, um, I do a lot of different types of assignments in my classes, mostly because I want to make sure that students are being assessed in a whole bunch of ways. Since I'm teaching the introductory psychology, um, very large classes, almost 500 students in a section, 
they're coming in all sorts of different backgrounds, and they also have they have a lot of different interests. Most of them are not psychology majors. I think most of us face that in intro psych especially. And so um, trying to figure out how to best approach learning is tricky. And so I do a lot of different types of assessments from the McGraw-Hill homework using SmartBook to be able to sort of get them all at, at an even level before they come to class with a low stakes assignment. And then we do some really fun assessments of deeper learning that has to do with, you know, different kinds of projects. We do a, an infographic project, for example, that assesses their ability to synthesize from outside sources and refute myths. And then, of course, we give a couple of traditional exams being, uh, you know, multiple choice kinds of things. But even those are designed to help learning because they're cumulative and comprehensive. So everyone builds on the ones before it. So some questions from the first unit are also present in the second unit test and on and on and on. So I'll jump in next. So I'm at a two-year institution, um, and while I do teach intro every once in a while, the niche that I found myself in is teaching the lifespan growth and development. Uh, developmental psychology is my background. At two-year institutions, many of the individuals taking those courses are allied health or nursing majors. So a lot of my assessments are both used as formative ways for them to keep tabs of where that information is and how they're succeeding or progressing in the course. Um, so they do have chapter-based quizzes and some formative assessments of how they're doing in terms of reading the textbook. But a lot of the other assignments that we do are geared towards having them apply their knowledge in a skill-based way. Um, and that's a very mindful decision in that most of these individuals within another 18 months will be working in the field in healthcare. And so a lot of our assignments are, I've actually done an infographic one on <laughs> uh, early childhood exposure to teratogenic effect. I've done uh, essays where they had to write about advice for someone in a genetic counseling. They're mindful, skill-based, practical kind of assignments, and they're driven wholly on the idea that these are assignments meant to pass on some level of knowledge about the skills that they're going to need to be successful in their career, which is for them, many of them, very soon in the future for them. So our, my assessments are a little less multiple choice test oriented and a little more what can you show me and what you can write and how can you complete something in a project for that reason. So AJ, for me, I, I kind of differentiate grading and assessment in my classroom. And so grade data are, are used for students to get feedback about their performance. And assessment data are for me to get feedback about my performance per se. And so when I design a, an assignment in my classes, and I tend to these days be teaching research methods in a capstone course, I'll design an assignment where I'm using rubrics in our learning management system and the one right now currently is Blackboard on my campus. And if I'm carefully using rubrics in my grading, I can also get assessment data that'll tell me what parts of a particular assignment my students did or did not do well in. And that gives me feedback about how I can go and redesign uh, my instruction for the following semester or even later in the current semester for a follow-on assignment or something that's going to continue on later later in that, that semester. So so there, I don't think they're synonymous for me, but I, they can be related. 
and if carefully designed, they can be aligned with APA learning outcomes and departmental outcomes. And so uh, I, I try to leverage these tools I have available to me so that uh, I can keep on this path to continuous improvement with assessment data. So Eric, you started to touch on this, but the three of you guys have experience as either assessment coordinators, department chairs, or assistant deans. So as we move kind of outside of the classroom into more of a departmental level, how do you and your departments and even your schools approach assessment from that perspective? So I'll take a stab at that first. Um, so at our institution, we have a committee of faculty that serve to work to develop an assessment plan and assignments that are going to be used referencing that plan. At our institution, we have learning outcomes and general education outcomes that are given to us by the state. And so we have to be mindful that whatever plan that we come up with as to how to collect our data needs to, in order to sort of leverage what we're doing already with what we're being asked to do by the state, that it covers both bases. So in the case of our institution, we run in a two-year cycle where we're going to assess items during the first year, then have faculty look at that data, make some tweaks, make some changes, and follow up and assess again to see if, much like uh, Eric was just talking about in terms of using rubrics, we, for example, in the past have had an assignment where we were asking them to research another culture and some of their theories and, and how that is impacted in an intro psych class. And we found that the rubric wasn't very clear for year one. We made adjustments. Students did much better on it. So it's meant to be a, a cycle that allows for faculty input and allows us to measure things on a more consistent basis. The challenge for that is that our outcomes are not always aligned perfectly with what our gen ed outcome is and our course outcome or our uh, program level outcome. And often we're collecting data from, by and large, at our institution, and I think this is pretty true for two-year institutions on the whole, you have a lot of students that are just taking a one psychology class, and either they've transferred, they've graduated, they didn't need it in their technical program. And so it's just a single snapshot of intro is really giving you the majority of your, of your snapshot for your program. So when we assess, we really are looking towards what are the kind of skills we can capture in a group of students that may only see psychology once? Um, and using that to say, what can we say about what our program is doing well, and maybe comparing those with the very small number of students that we have that take more than that one class. So we really try and look for assignments that are easily inserted into a course and that do a lot of the heavy lifting of being both a gradable item, but also something that we can have some meaningful comments about at least one small skill. That is the downside, is that unlike at an institution where maybe you have a capstone class to kind of talk about where they finished up, we're really just getting that single pretty much snapshot as to what is the skill they learned in their psychology class and how does that maybe fit in with what they've learned somewhere else along the way. One of the things I think is so interesting, Catherine, as I was listening to you talk, is that we have a real difference between skills-based and knowledge-based assessment, right? We t they talk about that in the literature a lot, but just 
you know, the way that you're talking versus my experience is so different with, you know, you really focusing on skills and what they need to know going out into the workforce with, you know, lifespan and things like that. Whereas I don't really have a whole lot of skills besides maybe, you know, critical thinking, thinking like a scientist, but nothing that is quite as relevant to take directly into the workforce as something like, you know, a nurse would be needing to do in your class. Most of my students aren't going to be anything related to, to psychology. So it becomes much more, um, much more abstract to try to assess those things. So I think that's, that's really interesting. I think for me, just to chime in briefly, you know, I think I probably think about this the simplest of the three, and my colleagues are much more sophisticated in the way they think about it. Every assessment official I've ever talked to from a regional or national accrediting body, I've pitched it this way. Would you be pleased if I could show you that my each individual colleague in my department collected assessment data, reflected on it, changed a a teaching method in their classroom, continued to collect data and continued to reflect on it. And then the department chair in that department rolled those up into a report and forwarded those. If, if a department submitted that as assessment, outcomes assessment data, would an accrediting agency be happy with that? And again, this is anecdotal. Would you be happy with that? Everyone has told me we'd be thrilled with that because faculty members are using data, they're reacting to student feedback in real time, and they're trying to improve their practice. And so um, I think about it, I guess, personally on a very granular classroom level, and uh, perhaps I should be also thinking about it on a much more macro state-based big outcomes, APA guidelines 2.0 level as well. Eric, I was going to say, having had some of those <laughs> kinds of conversations, uh, honestly, you're right that to a T, everyone I've ever talked to from an accrediting or state-based orientation is like, yes, it's the process that's that your faculty got together, they came up with some ideas, they tested them, they, they didn't work. And, and in delivering the message to, and I've had to deliver the message to both psychology faculty, but also faculty that are historians that don't have the same sort of quantitative data uh, training that maybe we do in psychology, but I get some right. of the same feedback that really this is a process. Think of this as, you know, the kinds of things that we ask our students to do in a research methods class. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be an absolute wonderful idea on the first go around. You just have to follow the process. And the interesting thing is I, I've gotten less pushback from perhaps folks that are not in psychology because I think one of the unique things about us as psychologists is that we have training and research methods. And so sometimes we're our own worst enemy because we want this, we want it to be like a laboratory study. We want to be able to make this perfect thing and, and, and we want to be clean and concise and good, bad, or other, sometimes the data from our classroom and the data from our, our assessments don't work that way. You're, you're changing things on the fly. I have a colleague that used clickers a lot, and, and so if the clicker wasn't working, it was, oh my gosh, now I've got to collect data some other way. We just, we would like it to be like our laboratory studies, and I think just inherent of being in a classroom and this organic experience of teaching, 
that doesn't always happen. You know, I'm in a unique position of mine is compounded because almost all my classes that I teach right now are online, which is completely different in terms of this asynchronous way of collecting interaction data between students and, and formative assessment for folks that may be completely different schedules of how they interact or how they interact with the material. Catherine, I, I think you nailed it. I think it's I think we're onto something really interesting. And so on the one hand, I think faculty members will sometimes balk. I don't understand why psychology faculty on every campus are not the assessment saviors and they're not the most <laughs> popular people on campus because they could help everybody. But at the same time, isn't it fascinating that our psychology colleagues are not as rigorous in their review of their teaching performance as they are in their research laboratories? And, and so they would never be sloppy researchers in their measures and their outcome in their measurement of a dependent variable, yet oftentimes they're very sloppy about their measurement of their student learning outcomes. I'm going to let Janelle get in here. Oh, I'm sorry. It's just, I, you know, when you said that, it reminded me of we went around and around and around quite a lot when we were first trying to sort of come up with a good program that everybody would get on board with. And I completely agree that psychology should be the, the savior, as you said, of, the, of everyone in assessment. It does make sense. And I think one of the problems, though, that, you know, again, that Catherine brought up is that it is, it is kind of a messy process. What I ran into over and over again were faculty members that were saying, you know, but this can't, this can't work because we're assessing the same thing that we are in charge of teaching. So if our assessment, for example, we fail to meet our objective, we can just move the target or we can just teach to the test. And that's not, it's not doing any good because we aren't able to standardize and rigorously control and do the things that we would normally do in, uh, in a laboratory-based study because we are doing the teaching and we are doing the assessment, which is by nature kind of a confound. But then also there's really a fair level of suspicion. And I don't know, again, if, that, if this is everywhere or just something that I've encountered, but faculty seem extremely concerned about what the data is going to be used for. And I think this comes out of, frankly, I think it comes out of a lot of the, you know, student assessment of faculty members' performances, where we know that's used in a lot of places for tenure and promotion, in spite of the fact that multiple rigorous research studies have told us how biased that data is, and yet the higher-ups are still using it for all sorts of things. And so I think that some faculty members are suspicious of, you know, is this going to be another thing where if I don't um, show that my performance goals are met, then I'm going to be denied tenure or something like that. And then everybody is just driven to make their targets really easy so everybody meets their target, and then it becomes meaningless. Well, Janelle, and, and you nailed it too. I mean, by the way, that threat or fear is pervasive. It's everywhere. And that's oh, good, the good. Glad yeah, you know that's, it's not just us. <laughs> yeah, that's the co-mingling of assessment and evaluation. And so sure. people don't trust that that assessment data isn't going to be misused. And so that's where I, I open with the whole idea of assessment data is there for me to improve my practice. It is not there for to be used as an annual evaluation of my performance. 
that should be completely separate and be done by separate processes, separate data. That's a whole separate thing. And so you have to trust the people you're around. You're, you trust your campus leadership. And so, uh, and if there's distrust, yeah, it's not going to work. And faculty are going to become negative about it. The only other thing I want to add really quickly is that, you know, there's always going to be faculty who don't think that what they can do can be quantified. You know, years ago, I remember being in a faculty senate meeting and I was sitting next to a theater arts professor who didn't think that, you know, his, his contributions could be quantified. And he was railing in the faculty senate meeting. And I, I got up and I wasn't invited back to the faculty senate for 25 years after I said this. And I said, don't you get a salary? Don't you get a paycheck? Your contribution is quantified on an annual basis. We put numbers on everything. Whether we do it valid and, re and reliably is a different story. And so, of course, we can measure these things. That's what we do. Yeah, I, I think, Janelle, the other point is that, and Eric said this earlier, that it's not just, is this going to be used to hurt me? Or is this taking away valuable time from something that will matter for things that aren't going to ever matter. And so Eric's comment earlier of, you know, they accrediting bodies, state institutions really just want to see the process. Sometimes I think that's very hard for faculty to buy into because, um, and our, our institution doesn't have tenure in the same way that four years do, um, or even some community colleges, and that's just another quirk of the state of Texas. We have tenure that is, is not really in existence. We just have you've acquired a contract of more than one year. So our evaluation really is teaching-based, but your assessment data isn't really meaningful to how you're going to be evaluated, per se, and it's possibly something that might take away from other areas of service as a faculty member. So I think faculty are very much, and it's a very odd parallel, are very much interested in what goes on in maybe their own classroom, but a little protective of that. But on the same token, not really interested in perhaps contributing to the greater assessment practices because it's sort of what's the payoff for me. For my role, that's been a big part of our institution's changes over the past five years is creating a committee of folks that can at least work on that stuff together so it's not just one person having to come up with it. It at least has some buy-in as faculty members and you start to see stuff that's a little more robust and got a little more usefulness in terms of how applicable it is, which has been nice. Catherine, I think it's important when you're talking about what's meaningful and what isn't too, because you know we can all. I think I mean every 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 person that I've ever talked to that cares about teaching can tell you what assignments are really important in their classes, which ones they look to to say, okay, I'm doing a good job at this. They're picking up on this. They're getting it, or no, they're not. I need to know. I need to change this, or I need to do better at this. We all sort of implicitly assess all the time in our own classes when we care about teaching. And that's meaningful to us, and so we do it. And absolutely, we can quantify that, and it would have meaning to us. I think one of the issues comes when we move to a larger level of taking that to a department level or taking that to a university, for example, gen ed level, 
Um, and it stops being as meaningful because it needs to start being more standardized. Um, and so what happens is even though I can say, you know, this assignment that is relevant to my class is very meaningful for assessing how I teach, um, when I'm trying to, for example, hit the same objective as 10 other classes that are only sort of loosely related to mine in that they are social sciences, for example, or something like that, and we've all decided, okay, in order to standardize assessment, we're going to give a 10-item multiple choice um, exam on ethics. I'm just, you know, making up an example here. Um, then, great, it's standardized. We can talk about how students are able to, you know, report their learning of ethics across these different gen ed objectives, but that loses meaning for me. And so I think that's one of the reasons that we do have difficulty with um, individual instructor buy-in is, you know, it is time-consuming and they don't necessarily see how that one measure that they're being asked to or forced to um, put into their classes to meet the standardization requirement necessarily helps them inform their own teaching. Janelle, I think sometimes, though, we have to get more creative about that. And so I think, you know, m maybe, um, maybe if you have a 10-item task that you want uh, every student in a certain course to take, because that's going to help the university level, um, Maybe that can be something that can be done outside of class time. Maybe that can be something asynchronously. As I'm sitting and thinking about what you're saying, I'm thinking about, I know in, in our Blackboard system, in our LMS, you can actually do university-level alignments. And so I could have my, my assignments not only map to, we, we call them ULOs, university-level outcomes, learning outcomes, and we have 10 of them at Boise State. Not only that, but I could have them also aligned to APA uh, learning goals. And so departmentally, if I ran a certain report, I could see my colleagues and how they lined up their outcomes. So it wouldn't be the exact same out. So if they're doing goal five professional development from APA, uh, we may not all be measuring it the same way, but I could see all the different measures my faculty members are using. And so, um, so in some cases, I hear what you're saying. We may have to convince our colleagues, hey, will you please play in this sandbox with us? Because we do want a common thread across certain classes in the gen ed curriculum. But maybe sometimes we can just ask them, will you please uh, evaluate a university learning outcome? Tell us how you're doing it and report on some data so that we can kind of start looking across the university. So, and Eric, we we don't use Blackboard. Um, we use uh, Desire yeah, to Learn. Right. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, uh, we have similar features. Although we do have for our general education a series of we call them core curriculum competencies. And so I, I chuckled when you said the ten item quiz on ethics. Because, for example, history for us is required to measure personal responsibility, which is defined pretty much as ethics. Um, and they did use a 10-item quiz on plagiarism. But humanities is also required to do that. They also used a quiz on plagiarism. And so what we've been able to do is kind of have assessment plans where everybody who's measuring the same type of skill is sort of using apples to apples comparisons. The challenge has been 
when you're in some of the other ideas, maybe like critical thinking or um, cultural competence, uh, social responsibility is what we call it, that we've had to rely a little bit more on items that have more rubric feel to them. Um, our institution has looked at using some value rubric style rubrics to help make sure that we're assessing, maybe not giving the same assignment, but assessing it using a similar vocabulary in terms of a rubric, but also in terms of making it meaningful on that broader level, it has been hard to get faculty to buy into that, to have an assignment that maybe is something that they could say, oh, I really, this will tell me some information, but because I need to be able to compare it to what somebody is doing in an econ class or in a sociology class, that I'm going to have to use a rubric for this that will help me compare what my students did to what somebody in an econ class did. Um, the other sort of lingering question, and it's not just faculty in my institution that have had this, it's in conversations with other individuals about assessments, um, particularly in psychology, is a lot of this is also saying, okay, your student took one or two psychology classes or sociology class, and as a psychology instructor, we gave them this essay assignment where they had to talk about the role of culture in early childhood development, and we measured it using this uh, rubric in order to get some sort of summative assessment information that we're going to roll on up into a university or college-wide event, making the claim then that we have somehow allowed students or students have been successful at some level of cultural competence after this single psychology class. And I guess some of the other challenges sort of compared to what? And that's where from the interactions with faculty that I've had, for them that's where some of that meaningfulness goes away is that they're wondering, am I reporting on this, you know, knowledge of ethics, knowledge of culture, critical thinking, you know, compared to what? How, how good were they before they walked in the door? How many other classes have contributed to this? And so that, from where I stand, is a lot of the conversations that we get to have as an institution about how are we making these statements about what these students can do based on what limited time we have with them. Okay, so this has been a great conversation. And I want to give each of you kind of an opportunity for some parting thoughts, but I also, you know, we were barreling towards this idea of how you create a culture of assessment. So maybe we can combine the two, and as a part of your parting thoughts, you can talk a little bit about your thoughts on how we create the culture of assessment. I can start that off. I think that it's a process. I think when you're talking about creating a culture, it really is exactly that that, you know, what I've found in moving to an R1 institution where this isn't necessarily, or it hasn't necessarily always been the highest priority, is that it really is about creating a culture. It's about kind of saying, okay, this is just something we are going to now do. And as new people come on board, as graduate students are trained, and as we move forward, it becomes less and less something that seems foreign or unusual and something that's just accepted. But I do think that, you know, a big part of that is the buy-in of people who are higher up, is the buy-in, Eric, like you were talking about, of the department chair, of the dean, 
saying, look, we're going to do this. And if you come back and say, well, what if I just don't want to, there's going to be something that happens as a result. Like we need you to work on this with us. And so having that reinforcement from the higher up coupled with just an idea that this is the way things are done is going to slowly but surely, I think, change the way we look at assessment, hopefully for the better. Yeah, HA for me, the, the building the culture of, of assessment, I think it's, it boils down to two things. It's about trust, and I think this is what partly what Janelle is talking about. I think it's trusting your, your department chair. It's trusting your dean. It's trusting that assessment data won't be used against you. I do think there's an expectation to collect it and use it, but it's also trust about I might try something new. I might flip my classroom and I might collect data that shows me that, oh, I failed miserably. I went out on a limb. I wanted to invigorate my teaching. I did my due diligence. I looked at the literature. I went to teaching conferences. I flipped my classroom and boy, I just blew it. I just did a face splat. But I collected the data. Now I know what to do differently. I'm hoping that my dean, my department chair, don't put me too badly in the penalty box. So is there that culture where I can collect assessment data because I want to be um, improving my teaching? And that's, to me, the second piece. Whether you're in year three or year 30 of your career, there needs to be a culture of continuous improvement. Uh, I, I, I am in my 29th year of teaching. I still have things to learn. I still need to go to teaching conferences. Sometimes I present. Most of the time I'm in the audience because I still have things I need to learn. Students continue to be changing individually and as a subculture. And so I think it's about trust. I think it's about continuous improvement. So I'll piggyback off Eric. I, I think trust, I think having an expectation are really important. I also think creating that culture of assessment also has an element of communication within it. Impart its communication very clearly about why are we doing this? Why is this important? Um, faculty and, and those in your classroom, you have things that you think are very meaningful and important to tell you information that you want to know, but as an institution, there may be information the institution wants to know, and communicating that goes a long way into getting folks being willing to say, yeah, I can give up a little bit of this thing I love in order to give the institution that I care about information that's going to help it. I also think communicating within our discipline is helpful for faculty creating a culture of assessment, particularly at community colleges. Professional development is also a much more precious thing. Um, we maybe don't go to all the conferences all the time. And so having a way to communicate what's going on in other classrooms and with other colleagues and what other things in psychology are happening uh, is going to help individuals at institutions where maybe they're never going to go to a, a major teaching conference or maybe they're an adjunct. We have a lot of adjuncts at our institution that aren't really going to be allocating their time for professional development at a teaching conference often because they have other primary jobs. And so communicating that information is super important in getting everybody sort of on the same page um, and creating that assessment experience that gives you rich and meaningful data for both you as an instructor, but also for you know me and your other institutional representatives that would like that information as well. Okay. Well, Catherine, Janelle, Eric, 
thank you, all three of you, for participating in this podcast on assessment. I think we've covered a lot of ground and some really excellent information. And thank everybody that's listening as well for joining us, and hopefully we'll see them all next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you. thank you for listening.